Well, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for your welcome here today. It's nice to be with you. I didn't expect to be here, and uh, I'm sure that, in a sense, we're sorry that we have to substitute for the brethren who couldn't come, but we trust that God will give us help today as we turn to his word. We're going to read in Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. Now the section uh, we're going to deal with is from verse 1 to verse 25. I'm not going to deal with the whole section, so don't worry. Uh, We're going to look at some aspects of this passage together. The subject is a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice. We're going to concentrate on the work of Christ. The sacrifice of the Saviour on the cross. I might be mistaken, but I think that maybe previous generations of Christians had a more elevated, uh, a more intense interest in the work of Christ on the cross. Now that just might be my feeling. But I come to that conclusion by reading their magazines and their books and by listening to their hymns. And I did some research, I looked up some of the the top 50 Christian books that have been sold in the last year and there are a number of lists available not one of them included a volume about the work of Christ on the cross brothers and sisters I'm glad to take up this subject today feeling my weakness but feeling that this is a subject we really need to concentrate upon a number of reasons for that first of all there's a doctrinal reason the greatest antidote to wrong doctrine, to error, is the presentation of the truth. And brothers and sisters, we need more than ever to be reminded the great truths of the work of Christ need to be restated. Secondly, there's a devotional reason. If we leave this conference today uh, not appreciating the work of Christ more and as a result not feeling a a spirit of worship and praise then my mission will have failed because in the words of the hymn O wonder to myself I am thou dying, bleeding, suffering lamb that I can scan the mystery o'er and not be moved to love thee more and then there's a practical reason too we're going to discover I hope today that Concentrating on the work of Christ on the cross, this better sacrifice is not just something for serious theologians or academics. It is something that will impact my daily living as a Christian. And so I want to focus upon this wonderful subject and find that it has a doctrinal impact and it has a devotional impact and it has a practical impact on our lives. Now the passage I've been given is verse 1 to verse 25. Let me just say this before we read the verses I'm going to deal with today. This section has three divisions. First of all, uh, we learn verses 1 to 4 about the need for his sacrifice. And the reason for it is quite simple. It's the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices. We learn in the first four verses that these sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were inadequate. They were ineffective. And so there is a great need for his sacrifice. From verse 5 down to verse 18, we discover 
the value of his sacrifice. And then the section from verse 19 to verse 25, it's the effects of his sacrifice. And so these are the three great themes in this section. The need for his sacrifice, the value of his sacrifice, and the effects of his sacrifice. I just want to talk uh, in this first session about the value of the sacrifice of Christ. That central portion. And then we find that central portion from verse 5 down to verse 18 is divided into three sections. This number 3 is quite good, isn't it? And so we have verse 5 down to verse 10. The subject is the will of God. You can see that quite clearly if you read the passage. Lo, I come to do thy will. Look at verse 10, by which will. And so we discover that the value of the work of Christ is in this, that he fulfills the will of God. Then in verses 11 down to 18, uh, sorry, verse 11 to 14, we have the work of Christ. So we have the will of God, then we have the work of Christ, and then 15 to uh, 18, we have the witness of the Spirit. Now I want to focus even uh, more intensely, not just on the value of his sacrifice, but I want to focus on this central section, verse 11 to verse 14, uh, the work of Christ, the value of the work of Christ. So let's just read these verses, well-known verses I'm sure, verse 11 to verse 14. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Amen. I want to focus on this passage this afternoon uh, to think of the work of Christ and I just want very simply to highlight seven glories of the work of Christ. Now I was speaking to my wife about this yesterday and I was telling her that I had seven points. Now she said to me, now you do know that when, when, when the preacher says there are seven points, there's a bit of a groan. Well I didn't hear the groan, but, but maybe there's an inward groan and you think seven points. I'm reminded, uh, I remember hearing uh, Brother Robert McFeet once telling us about a book he was reading. It was a book written by the Puritan, a Puritan. And uh, he said that he came across this uh, page that he was reading and it said, And now, 80thly, 80thly. So, brethren, be just thankful that we've only got seven points. And we're going to think of seven glories of the work of Christ. Now you will know that there are far more glories than seven in the work of Christ. This is an inexhaustible subject. But as we focus on these verses from the letter to the Hebrews, we discover there are seven glories of the work of Christ. I just want to point them out and let's enjoy them together as we focus our minds again on the value of his work. The first point is this, that the work of Christ is a singular work. 
It's a singular work. And so in verse 12, the writer says, This man, you'll notice in your Bible, the word man is in italics. So it could be this priest, or it could be this one. This man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins. It's a singular work. Now, of course, this is in contrast to the many sacrifices. He's just spoken in verse 11 about the offering of the same sacrifices repeated over and over again. Now, I wonder, have you ever tried to calculate how many sacrifices would be offered in the Old Testament? And uh, I had a look at this the other day. Of course, we can't with any accuracy because there are some we don't know anything about. But, just think for a minute of the regular sacrifices. There were two sacrifices every day. One in the morning, one in the evening. And then every Sabbath day, there was an extra two sacrifices. And then the first day of every month, there was an extra ten sacrifices. So these were just regular sacrifices. Now, you don't need to do the math, because I've worked it out. 954 sacrifices a year. And then if you come on now to think of what we might call the festal sacrifices. You think of the seven feasts of Jehovah. Now, I may be wrong here, but at least 100 sacrifices in the feasts of Jehovah. Then you might think of sacrifices for special occasions. You remember when Solomon dedicated the temple? I know you have these figures at your fingertips, but it was 142,000 sacrifices in one day. And it says that the altar, they just couldn't cope with the volume of sacrifices. And then you might think of the birth sacrifices. Have you ever thought of that? Every child that was born in Israel needed sacrifices. And, and the mother would bring sacrifices just as we have Mary in the New Testament. And then we haven't started on the mandatory sacrifices. These were sacrifices for sin. And so there is the sin offering and there was the trespass offering. And then of course we have the voluntary sacrifices. And so we have burnt offerings and we have peace offerings. And we find that as we try and, and, and imagine the numbers, this is a truly staggering amount. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of sacrifices every year. You multiply that by ten. You multiply that by a hundred. Multiply that by a thousand years. And you have some idea of the, the vast number of sacrifices. And so on one side, the writer says, there is this vast, almost incalculable number of sacrifices that were offered again and again and again. And on the other side, one. Brothers and sisters, it is the singular value of the work of Christ. Isaac Watts, one of the greatest hymn writers of our nation, he wrote, fresh blood as constant as the day was on their altar spilt, but thy one offering took away forever all our guilt. Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in this today. That, that in, in contrast to the, the, the millions of sacrifices of the Old Testament, which could never take away sin, there is one sacrifice this is the singular value and glory of the work of Christ. It's one sacrifice. Secondly, 
It's an effective sacrifice. That's the point of this chapter really. Because the writer is saying, these Old Testament sacrifices, they could never make people perfect. They could never take away sin. But he describes the sacrifice of Christ in verse 12 as a sacrifice for sins. Now that looks very similar to an expression used in verse 6 in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. But there's a big difference in the preposition for. In verse 6 it just simply means concerning sin, around the matter of sin. But these were ineffective sacrifices in the Old Testament. But the idea here, this sacrifice for sin, the idea of this little word for, is that this is the effective aim and purpose. It reminds us it's exactly the same preposition used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says that he gave himself a ransom for all. Brothers and sisters, isn't this wonderful? Not only is it a singular work, it is an effective work. And let us just be clear about this, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament had no intrinsic value. They had no value in themselves. They were never able to deal with the matter of sin. And we get that in this very chapter. In verse 11, the sacrifices which can never take away sins. Old Testament sacrifices had no power to take away sins. They could only cover sins. And it's been likened, uh, and it's quite a good illustration, to a payment by credit. Old Testament believers were forgiven on credit. The, the, the price, the, the payment was covered over. Until Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 3 I think it is, he reminds us that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he didn't simply pay the price for my sins, he paid the price for David's sins, and Abraham's sins, and Isaac's sins, and Adam's sins, and Abel's sins, and the sins that were committed in the Old Testament that were covered over. The sacrifices could never take them away. But brothers and sisters, when our Lord Jesus came, his sacrifice was an effective sacrifice for sins that's wonderful and so let's let's have a high view of the work of Christ it always as a, as a young boy I was saved when I was 12 and as a young boy it always amazed me and I, and I can never get my head around it I still can't get my head around this but before I was even born Christ died for my sins and then it, it further amazed me uh, when I discovered and I heard it taught just what we've been saying that, that all the Old Testament when the Saviour died on the cross he was not just paying the price for sins that had not yet been committed he was paying the price for sins that had been committed thousands of years in the past brothers and sisters this is a glory of the work of Christ it is not only a singular work it is an effective work. It is a sacrifice for sins. Thirdly, it's a finished work. Because the writer goes on to say, this man after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down. That's the way I like to have it anyway. Uh, Mr. Newbury puts the comma in the right place, I think, in my Bible. Forever sat down. 
Now it is true that the Lord Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. That is very true. But I don't think that's the point here. The point is that he has forever sat down. And the idea, as you are perfectly aware, I'm sure, we were always taught uh, that in the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple, there was one item of furniture that was missing, and that was a seat. Because the priest could never sit down. His work was never finished. And the idea of the priest sitting down is foreign to the Old Testament. You only find one priest that's recorded sitting down. And you remember it was the priest, uh, it was Eli. And he was blind and he was sitting in a seat. And uh, he was not really a good uh, example of a priest. But brothers and sisters, when it came to the tabernacle and the temple, there was no seat for the priest. He could never sit down because his work was never finished. And in fact, if you look at verse 11, he says every priest stands. He doesn't say every priest stood. Because when he's writing this, it's still going on. They're still at it. In Jerusalem, the temple's still there. And as he's writing, as the writer is writing to the Hebrews, he's just imagining, he's perhaps looking, I was going to say he's looking at the clock, but maybe not looking at the clock, but he's, he's thinking, well, it could be the time of the evening sacrifice. He says, every priest is standing, they're at it today, they're still doing it. And every day they're standing there because their work could never be finished. It had to keep going on and on and on. But in contrast, he says, this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, he forever sat down. Isn't that wonderful, brothers and sisters? Isn't it wonderful to have a seated priest? Now there's a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ is standing. You remember Stephen, as he's been stoned to death? He looks up into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, uh, different commentators have different ideas about that. Some say he's standing uh, to welcome Stephen into glory as the first martyr. Well, that's a nice thought. But I'll tell you what I think. He's standing there. The reason why Stephen could endure the death he did was because there was a high priest standing in the presence of God, interceding for him. You see, as my interceding priest, he is always standing. But as my offering priest, he's always sitting. He's seated. You will know, I'm sure, that there were three functions of the priest in the Old Testament. First of all, they were offering sacrifices. And then they were interceding. And then they were blessing. Well, the wonderful thing about the Savior is this. That the offering priesthood of Christ has come to an end. He will never need to do that again. He is a seated priest when it comes to the offering. The interceding of the priest goes on until every saint is safely home in glory. And then I think, you might disagree with me, I, I think that will cease too. But the blessing of the priest will go on. He's a priest like Melchizedek. And that will go on into eternity. He'll never stop. The Bible says he's a priest forever. He'll never offer again. There's a time coming when he'll never intercede again. But there will never be a time when he doesn't bless his people. And so the wonderful truth is this. That not only is this a singular work and an effective work. It is a finished work. He has forever sat down. Thank God for a seated priest. We're at number four. 
So we've got a singular work, an effective work, a finished work. Number four, this is an acclaimed work. Because where did he sit down? He didn't sit down on earth. He didn't sit down on earth. And he didn't even just sit down somewhere in heaven. He didn't sit down like the elders round about the throne. He sat down on the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, this tells me that the work of Christ, and I try to imagine this, and it might be a flight of imagination, but you try to imagine the Lord Jesus returning to glory, and, and I can quite imagine him coming into the very presence of God, and he, well sometimes, this is a great theme in the letter to the Hebrews, isn't it? Him sitting down at the right hand of God. Sometimes God says, sit thou, I'm sure you cover this in chapter 1, sit thou on my right hand. But there are other times when he sits himself down. And the wonderful thing is this, brothers and sisters, that by sitting on the right hand of God, this is the position of power and honor and glory and favor. Heaven is acclaiming the value and worth of his sacrifice. God is saying to angels and to demons and to men that the sacrifice of Christ is acclaimed in heaven. Brothers and sisters, isn't that wonderful? I think it is. And so this is an acclaimed sacrifice on the right hand of God. Now, you will know that this expression is used, I think, about five times this idea of sitting on the right hand in the letter to the Hebrews. But you'll see sometimes it's the right hand of the majesty on high. Sometimes it's the right hand of the throne. But in this context it's the right hand of God and the reason for that is this this is the God who has been offended by sin this is the God whom every sin has been committed against and the wonderful thing is brothers and sisters that the God who has been offended and whose throne has been uh, almost disgraced by, the, by the, the occurrence of sin is now so delighted and acclaims the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's sitting, not just in heaven, not just on the right hand of the majesty, not just on the right hand of the throne, he's sitting on the right hand of God. That's wonderful. It's an acclaimed work in heaven. How are we getting on? Number five. <laughs> I hope you're keeping up with these. Number five. It's a victorious work. He is sitting on the right hand of God from henceforth, verse 13, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now this is imagery used throughout the Bible, isn't it? About enemies being made the footstool. It, it's the picture of absolute dominion. And the wonderful thing is, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ, having completed the great work of sacrifice on the cross, he has entered into heaven, and that singular, effective, finished, acclaimed work that he accomplished is a victorious work. He is waiting now for his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. You remember in the Old Testament, when David was on his deathbed almost and Adonijah tried to steal the throne and David did something very significant he very deliberately took Solomon and he 
placed him on his throne, on David's throne. And he was sending the clearest possible signal to Adonijah and to his enemies that the dominion will be Solomon's because he's sitting on the throne. And when his enemies heard that, then all the opposition melted away. Brothers and sisters, let us remind ourselves of this. That our blessed Lord Jesus is seated on the throne. He is seated on the right hand of God. And he is there waiting until his enemies, every single enemy, will be subdued. Now, we look around us today. It seems that the enemies have the upper hand. It seems as though evil is increasing. We, we despair, don't we, as we look at society, as we think of uh, whether it is in the classroom or whether it is in the hospital or whether it is in the media, uh, whether it's our culture or our politics or even our religious, the religious life of our nation. It seems that evil is on the ascendancy. Dear brother, dear sister, look up. Look up. There is one seated on the right hand of God and he waits expectantly, patiently, until the day when every foe will be subdued under his feet. And under the nail-pierced hands, under the nail-pierced feet of Calvary, every enemy will be subdued and he will have absolute and total dominion. It's a victorious one. Number six. It's a perfect work. By one offering, verse 14, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. He has perfected. And the idea here is that he has made perfect those who believe in him because of the perfection of his work. And, and this thought of being perfect is the idea of being complete. And it tells us, brothers and sisters, that, that the work of Christ, it needs no addition, it needs no alteration, it needs no modernization, it needs no revision. Uh, there is nothing required. It is absolutely perfect and complete. I'm always amazed when I read in the Gospels of the, the, the Saviour on the cross. And you remember in John. John is the great Gospel of completion. And in John's Gospel uh, we read this. That the Lord Jesus, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. Now, to me... I would have thought, well, that's a very minor thing. But the Lord is carefully and deliberately and meticulously ensuring that there is nothing missing from this work. That every single scripture is fulfilled. Every single scripture is complete. Brothers and sisters, isn't that wonderful? That our Saviour, this gives me great confidence. This gives, as a believer in Christ, this gives me great assurance to think that his work is absolutely complete. And the various errors that we face today, in some way or another, they, they detract from the, the work of Christ in suggesting that I have to do something to, to do my part, that I have to add something. Brothers and sisters, I add nothing to the work of Christ. I simply accept it. And all its wondrous value is credited to me. And I am perfected in the perfect work of Christ. That's wonderful. Sinless perfection. We've got there already. In our position at least. 
<laughs> we're, not, we're not perfect. We understand that. We're not perfect in our practice. We fail and we sin. But as far as God is concerned, in the work of Christ, we're absolutely perfect. The billions of years you will spend in heaven will add nothing to what you are now in the eyes of God. He has perfected those that are sanctified. It's a perfect work. And we're coming now to the end of this session. And the seventh, uh, I'll just run through them again. I'm sure you've got them all in your mind or written down. First of all, it's a singular work. Secondly, it's an effective work. Thirdly, it's a finished work. Fourthly, it's an acclaimed work. Fifthly, a victorious work. Sixthly, it's a perfect work. And number seven, it is an eternal work. Listen to what he says. For by one offering he has perfected forever. And literally this means to perpetuity. That just means that uh, never ending. And the idea of perpetuity is used again in this very passage. Because in verse 12, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins, he sat down to perpetuity. And that means this, dear brother, dear sister, that as long as he is seated, I am safe. As long as he is seated and his work is complete, then so long I am safe. He will never rise again from his seat to deal with the matter of sin. It's been dealt with finally and fully and completely. And as long as he is seated in respect of the work of sin, so long I am safe. To perpetuity. Think about this. That the work of Christ will never lose its value throughout eternal ages. That, that we're, we're, we're going to meet again in glory and we'll, we'll maybe, well I, I, I don't know if you'll remember this meeting, but we might remember this wonderful truth. That, that throughout eternal ages the work of Christ will never diminish in value. I believe, and I think this is the case, that, that throughout eternal ages we will be finding out more and more glories about his person and about his work. But the value of that work will never diminish. It will increase in our minds as our capacity increases to understand it and appreciate it. It can never, it can never be more valuable in the mind of God. But to perpetuity, think of it brothers and sisters, think of it. Something that happened outside the city walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It has eternal value that will go on and on and on to perpetuity. Unending wonder and value of the work of Christ. And so the writer... Um, he's been contrasting all the way through and you've enjoyed this already I'm sure he's been contrasting all the way through the Old Testament, the inadequacies of Judaism and he's talking to people who are being tempted to go back to it and he's really just bringing it all to a head now and saying just sit back and think of the wonder and the value of the work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's do that this afternoon. Let's just enjoy and may our hearts be stirred as we think of the singular, effective, finished, acclaimed, victorious, perfect and eternal work of our blessed Saviour.